Um, welcome, everybody. We are uh, delighted that you are here. Uh, this is a public uh, lecture. It's been sponsored by the William and Mary Center for the Study of Law and Markets. And our speaker today is going to be Professor Molly Brady. Um, professor Brady is a professor at the University of Virginia Law School and is a scholar on uh, property and the history of property. And today we're going to learn all sorts of interesting things about where property rights came from. So take it away. Great. Thank you for that introduction. It is great to be here with all of you today. I must say your faculty has some of my very favorite scholars on it, uh, so I feel extra lucky to be uh, among this group today. Um, so my topic sounded rather big, uh, which is markets and the evolution of property law. Uh, and to ask a big question, I'm really interested in questions about the relationship between property and economic development, which we typically think of as needing uh, kind of healthy markets and land. So a lot of property scholars have become I would say more and more interested in questions about the relationship between property uh, and economic development, uh, particularly because of the work of an economist named Hernando de Soto, who I believe actually a few years ago, there's a lovely picture of him, uh, was a recipient of the Brigham Canner Property Rights Prize here. Uh, so in two of his works, uh, The Other Path and The Mystery of Capital, uh, de Soto took on a big question, which is why do some countries succeed at capitalism while others fail. Uh, and so the answer for DeSoto was legal property rights. So good news for property professors everywhere, uh, rather than uh, social or cultural differences among groups. Uh, so according to DeSoto's history, uh, all countries have at some point gone through a transformation, essentially, from extra-legal property arrangements to formal legal property institutions. And that transformation is what really leads from stagnation to broader growth. Uh, that list of all countries, of course, includes the United States. Uh, and so according to DeSoto, the most important shifts in American property law were those that legitimated the titles of extra-legal owners, uh, and particularly those in the American West, beginning in Kentucky and points onward. So DeSoto treats a range of laws and legal doctrines as part of this transformation. So the laws that entitled uh, owners to keep land if they improved it somehow by putting buildings on it, uh, adverse possession laws, uh, and laws also affirming customary mining rights, things like that. And so DeSoto argued that in the long and arduous process of integrating all these extra-legal property interests, American legislators and jurists created a new system that was conducive to a productive and dynamic market economy. Uh, he suggests exporting that transformation, uh, that approach around the globe. Um, so what I'd like to do today is push us back much farther in history uh, than DeSoto really systematically goes, because I think the story of economic development in the US is indeed more complicated than that story indicates. Uh, so DeSoto's story is, I think, both focused on the right things and a little under-inclusive of what matters. Uh, so I think that DeSoto was right to view the integration of informal local practices into formal property systems as really critical to economic development. Uh, but the integration of early localized practices into government institutions had much more to do with social factors on the ground uh, than he seems to indicate. Uh, and so the success of these institutions at the outset of American history was really due to connections uh, between participants in the market, shared knowledge between them, and their cohesion as groups. Uh, so he's right to look at bottom-up evolutions as critical parts of what makes uh, markets and land succeed, but his de-emphasis on the social factors, maybe different ones that he, than he had in mind, I think that de emphasis uh, may miss an important piece of the evolutionary story. So for the rest of my talk, 
I'm going to split American property law into component parts uh, because I think comparing the parts is going to allow us to see how these social factors matter. Uh, and perhaps unsurprisingly, I'm going to refer often to two places I have lived and studied. So New England and specifically Connecticut and then also Virginia. So diff different social groupings uh, and their approaches to and reasons for settlement had dramatically different effects on the property law and institutions that ultimately developed, and also the speed of economic growth, and the actual physical settlement of the land. Uh, so DeSoto focused on legitimizing illegitimate title as a key to growth to property markets, uh, but I'm going to focus my remarks on a species of legal integration that had equally dramatic uh, effects for development, which was the design and implementation of recording institutions. Anyone want to leave at this point uh, after I said that? Okay, good. The pizza's keeping you. Excellent. Uh, it will be interesting, I think. So DeSoto begins from uh, a point at which informal practices coexist alongside uh, formal institutions for recognizing rights in land. Uh, but at the outset of American settlement, those institutions were non-existent institutions for recognizing land rights. So to understand the beginnings of American property institutions and the law's uh, evolution, we have to go back to England, of course, uh, where the settlers of both Virginia and New England came from to see kind of what was going on with property law uh, in the 1600s. So a lot was changing abroad when it came to land and land law, of course. Uh, so ongoing shifts from kind of feudal uh, landholding to new patterns of land ownership, uh, rules encouraging alienability, including everyone's favorite, the rule against perpetuities. Uh, and many of these shifts toward a market in land uh, were accompanied by rules that continued to protect the interests of wealthy families uh, and shield inheritances. So for example, laws that would shield inheritances from creditors upon the death of a person. Paradoxically, something else that was uh, helping to protect the interests of the wealthy few was the utter obtuseness of figuring out who owned what. Uh, so to be sure, the publicity of land sales has always been important, prevents fraudulent conveyances, uh, either by debtors who are trying to transfer property uh, to a friend to get it outside the reach of a creditor, or else just sort of hucksters kind of selling land that they don't actually own. Uh, and so in English law, traditionally, that publicity required the livery of season, right? The transfer of the turf in a public ceremony uh, from the buyer, uh, from the seller to the buyer, rather, in the presence of witnesses. Uh, after acts of parliament in uh, the 1530s, uh, deeds could satisfy that publicity requirement instead of the actual turf transfer. Uh, and deeds were supposed to be enrolled uh, with a court within six months of their execution. However, as one source put it, uh, the invention of lawyers was at length too much for the precautions of parliament. Uh, so lawyers quickly developed a new form that got outside of all these laws called the lease and release. So fictional leases followed by a relinquishment of the fictional landlord's interest to the tenant. And these were functionally indistinguishable from land sales. They still kind of transferred possession, but they didn't need to be uh, recorded. And so nearly all transfers uh, end up taking this form. The result is that historians generally say that at the time of initial American settlement, uh, institutions for recording or ascertaining the title of land were dysfunctional uh, in England. And over the later 17th century, uh, there were periodic agitations for some more systematic uh, land recording systems, but these were thwarted by, guess who? Lawyers, uh, who were making a lot of money off of confusion and drafting leases. Uh, and in some cases, there was also fear that if the government had awareness of land titles, uh, they would punish their enemies because they would be more easily able to locate them or something like that. 
Uh, indeed, discussions of the problems associated with land recording were so culturally salient uh, that there were even poems written about them. Uh, and so here's a lovely snippet of a 25-verse uh, poem by a man named Andrew Yerenton, uh, which is a plain dealer's plan for a registry. And I mean, this is just beautiful, I think. Um, I wonder why you learn Romeo and Juliet instead of things like about land registries in 10th grade. It seems like uh, comp people complaining about the knaves being outwitted uh, by a registry system much more salient to me. But something curious was happening uh, abroad as they're complaining about what's going on um, in England. So. Uh, England is mostly failing to set up its system, um, but different American colonies are developing their own systems and in ways that look different from one another uh, and that responded to both social differences in the settler groups and physical differences in the land. Uh, so the first American recording law actually comes from right near here uh, in Jamestown in 1626. Uh, and it said that all land sales should be brought to Jamestown and enrolled in court within a year if the grantor was to stay in possession. This didn't really prove effective. There appears to have been minimal compliance with this law basically from the beginning. Um, but even still, this law only targeted a subset of transfers, those that were transfers without changes in possession. This was targeting fraudulent conveyances, just like old English laws. So it was meant to address shady grantors who executed secret deeds to friends while they were going to remain on the land. Uh, in other words, transfers where they were staying in possession but had sold the land to someone else. And the purpose of doing this kind of sale uh, was so that you could tell your creditors you no longer had title. Uh, this would let them escape the use of their assets to satisfy debts. So if the grantor actually transferred possession, sold the land, uh, then no recording was necessary. So not operating on a lot of different sales. The New England colonies, though, took a broader uh, approach to recording. So the law that became the template for most New England recording laws came from Massachusetts in 1640, and it set out some pretty important and unique features. So first, its goal was, and I'll quote, that every man may know what estate or interest other men may have in any houses, lands, or other hereditaments that they are to deal in. This was drafted both to target those fraudulent conveyances and also just as a means of sharing information. Also, all sales had to be recorded, not just those uh, where the grantor remained in possession. Uh, second, the Massachusetts law created a new office and new procedures uh, for land recording. So instead of being enrolled at court, there would now be an official called a recorder who would have a book, a separate book of transfers specifically. So in other words, you wouldn't need to go look through all of the court records uh, to determine where a transfer was. You would just be able to locate uh, one book, which would contain all land records. Third, and I think most important, uh, the Massachusetts Act added something with momentous consequences. So there were not just penalties for failing to record, fines and the like. Uh, but now there was a strong incentive to record, uh, and that was priority. So priority meant that the first person to record would have a legally enforceable and stronger claim to the land than any subsequent recorder or grantee in the event of a conflict. And these provisions together were a mix of innovations and also customs from different places. So surely there was that idea of enrollment from Virginia law, from England, and so that was probably influencing them. The Dutch also had a land registration system, uh, and some of America's earliest 
settlers came through there, although it's kind of hard to imagine that what they got from there was uh, the recording laws. Who knows, though? Um, and lastly, there were customs from feudal manors of keeping rolls of activities uh, and transfers of land between tenants, which plausibly could have influenced the idea of a recorder and a book, certainly. But priority was really something new, or seems to have been something new. The closest analog uh, might have been those involving fictitious lawsuits. So these were sometimes called fines or common recoveries. Individuals would pretend to litigate a land title, um, and then there would be a fine paid to the king in exchange for litigating it. Uh, it was sort of all an imaginary controversy, but it got the transfer into the books and sort of gave the imprimatur of uh, the government to uh, a land title. The Massachusetts form of priority, though, was different. It didn't require a fictitious lawsuit. Uh, instead, recording a loan, uh, less expensive. Uh, and so that seems to have been somewhat different from what existed before. It's hard to overstate how important this law was uh, in American development. So it created the architecture for what would become more secure land titles, uh, for the extension of credit based on those land titles, uh, and for the confirmation of who and what you needed to negotiate uh, for a given transaction or set of rights. Uh, but simply setting up these institutions wasn't really enough. Uh, so the institutions require compliance uh, and functionality to be effective. After all, uh, if the purpose of recordings is to communicate effectively uh, to creditors and buyers and the state, uh, describing the thing, describing the land, is of utmost importance. And so the term that we use for how we define land is land demarcation. It refers both to the physical and spatial dimensions of the thing, as well as just the methods for describing it. Uh, so no recording laws actually prescribed how demarcation should take place. Uh, from a modern perspective, I think it's hard to put ourselves in the shoes of early American settlers. So how should a new territory be carved up and then communicated about? Uh, for the purposes of recording it or registering it? And how does that decision ultimately interact with markets in land? As it happens, there's been some important scholarly work on that question. And in particular, there's been some influential work over the last decade or so by two property economists uh, named Gary Leibcap and Dean Luke. So in their first paper, these two economists, Gary Leibcap and Dean Luke, they set out to analyze the economic consequences of two different land demarcation systems. So the meets and bounds system, in which properties are laid out and described by landmarks and adjacent features, and the rectangular system, uh, which is exemplified by the grid that covers most of the Western states as a result of the public land survey system and the land ordinance of 1785. So properties planned in that region are typically rectangular, um, and they can be described by a sophisticated numbering system of tiers and lot numbers. In contrast, uh, parcels in meets and bounds regions tend to be irregularly shaped, and they're described in more imprecise and contingent terms. Uh, so Leibcap and Luke studied these demarcation systems using a natural experiment in which uh, the two were located next to one another, and it concerns this area. Um, so this shaded part of Ohio in the left-hand picture is called the Virginia Military District. Um, and for bizarre historical reasons, that area was given to Virginia to use as payment for Revolutionary War veterans. And so surveys were done in that part of Ohio using the meets and bounds method of describing properties by landmarks rather than the grid that was being used in the rest of 
what was then the West. And so as a result, in this area of Ohio, you get really rectangular properties next to really irregular properties. And you can kind of see that a little bit on uh, the right-hand side, hopefully. Um, so there's kind of those boundary lines between the really regular rectangular piece and the top image uh, above the line, and then the meets and bounds system below the line. So they studied a bunch of issues in this region, but they had a few conclusions that I'll highlight. So according to their study, uh, demarcation systems are path-dependent, and there are long-term negative consequences associated with choosing meets and bounds versus a more uniform system. So they found that per-acre land values are greater in the rectangular system even 200 years later, um, in some cases as much as 20 to 30 percent higher. And so Leibcap and Luke attribute this difference to the fact that enforcement costs are high in an area uh, surveyed by meets and bounds. That is, title is likely to be kind of unclear. Uh, using the, these methods of description, there are likely to be more overlapping claims. Parties are likely to have more lawsuits. They also suggest that transactions costs are high in meets and bounds areas. So finding where a parcel is can just be costly uh, when it's described imprecisely as in meets and bounds. Another way of putting this, uh, lining this with what I began with, uh, is that Livecap and Luke, like DeSoto, chiefly treat the American West as the fulfillment of the ideal conditions uh, for market transactions. So land is an asset that gets carved up in a logical, uniform way, and it can then be transferred to an infinite set of unknown others. Um, I'm not sure this story is exactly right. Uh, so to the contrary, I think that despite their apparent incomprehensibility, um, the flexibility of meets and bounds was in some senses a virtue uh, and contributed to the implementation and ultimate success of American recording institutions farther back in history in that period in which they're being uh, set out that I mentioned. So this initial period of development was crucial before the institutions could then be exported and refined in other places in the West. So let me go back to those recording institutions in New England. Uh, like Virginia, meet, uh, the, the New England colonists used meets and bounds too to describe parcels, no doubt because that's how it was being done in England and wills and other sources. Uh, but here's an example of a meets and bounds deed from uh, an area I've studied extensively, which surely you're all reading uh, excitedly from your third row. Um, so difficult handwriting here, but what that says is that the parcel is by the town commons, near the widow Talmadge, by a highway. Kind of hard to tell where this is today. Uh, the Widow Talmadge was not terribly well known even at the time, I think. Um, but uh, why am I showing you this? So the colonists uh, weren't told by the recording laws exactly what the books of records should contain, how they should describe property. Um, and so in England, some books were just basic indexes that had uh, transactions in them listing, for example, Molly sold to Jack or something like that. Uh, the New England colonists, though, recorded full land descriptions packed with dense information. Uh, so the most common things they used to describe property were neighbors, uh, natural features, uses of the property, local nicknames for neighborhoods, fences, other man-made structures, things like that. Of course, it is hard to tell, as I mentioned, uh, even the shape or the location of any individual parcel. So few deeds contain even perimeters, just listings of perimeters, or any other information that's sort of comprehensible to modern readers. 
I've argued in some of my work uh, that comprehensibility to a modern reader really misses the point. Uh, instead, what mattered was that this method of describing land was cheap to comply with, and it shared information about new lands and the landscape among market participants and between those participants and the government. It left institutions flexible too. There were not strict recording requirements or formalities, so we can tell this, because individuals were recording sometimes really basic information when they were transferring between kin, uh, so selling to a family member, or they were using more formal language when in an arm's length transaction. Uh, moreover, as they learned exactly what these institutions were, they recorded little contracts alongside deeds, uh, described things like personal property in meets and bounds terms, things like tools and boats sort of described uh, by things near them, kind of odd. And clerks didn't send them away for failing to meet some sort of bureaucratic requirement. Uh, instead, compliance was just easy, just write down what they brought. Any imprecisions that would seem to result uh, from this system seem to have been mitigated heavily by social factors and the adaptation of some English customs. Uh, so one of the more significant that I've written about was perambulation, uh, which is a process whereby members of the community came together to literally march uh, the boundaries of some piece of land and drop or carve markers into it. Uh, this process is also known as beating the bounds. This is probably the only thing you'll remember from this talk, um, but here's why. So here are some examples of people beating the bounds. They would actually walk through things like streams. Um, if that was the boundary, uh, they would actually hit the um, the boundary stones with those long sticks. Uh, and as you can see, there are some sad children involved in these processes. So uh, these are all from England, by the way, obviously not colonial America, uh, but uh, there's a child in the bottom left touching a boundary stone and then the poor kid in the top has been flipped on his head. Uh, children were often involved in perambulations. I'll say more about why in a minute. Um, we know too that sometimes children were beaten during uh, the perambulation ceremonies. Um, in English law, perambulations were uh, summarily used for defining town or parish boundaries, but Americans adapted this custom uh, and started using it for private land, and Connecticut actually mandated that you do perambulations once yearly at the request of either the owner or your neighbor. Um, and informal perambulations were also taking place where a few neighbors or friends would walk the boundaries together. The express purpose of this practice was to create witnesses who could attest to the property's location for later buyers or testify in the event of a dispute. Uh, and this is why children were involved, because it was thought that they would make good witnesses for a really long time. Uh, this practice was important. Uh, it decentralized to community members the task of boundary upkeep as well as boundary interpretation. And it created a set of translators of meets and bounds descriptions. And we actually see some of those kids in later records. So I found a bunch uh, of old men testifying about where they saw things like white stones uh, in their childhood uh, 70 years after they actually were doing these perambulations. So it was definitely used. Uh, other social factors also uh, helped initial compliance with uh, and the functionality of recording institutions in Connecticut. So the community was small and relatively homogenous, religiously united, and they could interpret boundary descriptions within a few degrees of relationships. The community was also important in the context uh, of any eventual litigation, so courts often invoked notions of neighborliness trying to basically encourage parties to arbitrate their disputes. And they would also call in witnesses and friends of owners uh, to provide evidence of boundary lines when they were ultimately uh, fought over. Perhaps surprisingly, 
but I think as a result of these features, there was actually very little litigation that I found uh, for the first several decades of New Haven history. So just a small handful of lawsuits relating to boundaries for about 70 years compared to tons of other types of lawsuits. These people fought everything, but they were not litigating land. Uh, and this is different than the amount of litigation uh, that Leibcap and Luke observe in Ohio and that they argue was going on in depressed values. Importantly, though, uh, the functionality of this system was tied to the identities of and the connections among the participants. Uh, there were connections that predated the institutions, certainly. New England set settlement was deeply connected to religion. Uh, but legal procedures and requirements like perambulation uh, also created bonds because they encouraged repeat social act uh, interaction that kind of fed on itself. Eventually, all of this changed. So as immigration brought new and unfamiliar settlers uh, and land scarcity, the property system ultimately adapted. Land descriptions became more standardized. Recording practices became more standardized, both as the size of the lending economy changed and also as the number of participants in uh, the land market increased. <coughs> The development of land uh, recording practices in New England, though, I think teaches some interesting things. First, that local markets and institutions grew and functioned because of social connections among the participants and procedures that made advantageous use of those social connections. Also, there was some wiggle room for growth in these institutions once there was buy-in from the settlers who were willing to uh, basically participate in and respect novel recording laws, uh, again, that were new to them. So this brings me back to Leibcap and Luke's theory. So as I mentioned, Leibcap and Luke has a, ha, have a much more dismal view of meets and bounds and the efficacy of recording institutions from their study of Ohio. And that's not all that surprising because the Virginia military district lacked something that New Haven had, which was an undergirding social structure uh, and procedures that advantageously sustained it. Uh, the Virginia military district was laid out piecemeal to a group of strangers over a hundred year period with no perambulations, no social connections among the residents. And this would inherently seem to create a system plagued with more problems um, than the one in New Haven. But what of the earlier settlement uh, and institutions of Virginia? So Virginia military districts surveying was based on Virginia. And this is a question I've just started looking into, but there's already some interesting lessons I'm finding. Uh, so the New England settlers were, as I've mentioned, often religiously connected uh, and often persecuted religiously. And they came in small communities and they approached their settlement with a group mentality. So they settled initially in towns and they dispersed and transacted in land immediately adjacent to their townships. They also tightly controlled access to their colonial enterprise. Uh, so they initially required uh, actually approval to join the colony before a settler could purchase land, all sorts of things. Uh, and they had a lot of ways of limiting new entrants. Virginia settlement was almost from the outset something completely different, as many of you may know. Um, so the primary function of Virginia was to extract money from the land. Uh, the colony had no shortage of land, but it needed a ton of people to work it. Uh, so it induced colonists to move here and begin extracting as quickly as possible. In other words, the settlement was based on encouraging rapid immigration and settlement, quite in contrast to the religious New England town model of settlement. So immigration there is being actively discouraged. There were a variety of pathways to land ownership in colonial Virginia. 
This is going to be a broad overview. Uh, but there was investment in the company or the colony. And so in lieu of a dividend, you would get some land. Uh, there were grants from the Virginia company or colony, sometimes as favors to fancy people. Uh, and other times, uh, if you stayed as an indentured servant for long enough and actually stayed after your term was up, you might get land. Uh, there was also something quite important called head rights. So in exchange for bringing or paying the cost of transport for a person, a head, uh, you would receive land. And so financiers of voyagers and ship captains were getting huge disbursements of land in exchange for bringing people. There were also military warrants. So just like uh, the Virginia military district was uh, handed out after Revolutionary War service, if you fought, uh, you could get land occasionally. And then there was also purchases or treasury rights either directly from the colony uh, or from individuals. What you got when you got any of these, got on any of these pathways to land uh, was a document that entitled you to land. And it would often be certified by justices of the county court. If you were actually importing people, you would have to get a certificate of importation saying how many people you had brought. The secretary of the colony would then approve it and give you a document that then authorized survey. Then the county surveyor would receive it. Uh, he would identify the parcel, or you could try to ask for a particular parcel yourself, would survey it, and then would deliver it back to the secretary. The secretary would prepare something called a patent, which would become the first real deed in the chain of title. And it was held centrally. Uh, future transfers of that land interest would be held in county records. So here's what a patent looks like. Um, it's, this is from a much later period. Uh, eventually, they come to include these little maps um, drawn by the surveyors. Uh, but note that this came from Richmond. This is where I found this. So as my description indicates, uh, the records of the initial patent were centrally kept, and they were costly to produce. They involved a lot of back and forth uh, between kind of county officials and the actual secretary of the colony. There was a lot of interaction between the locals and the capital. It was a big production. Um, and what this set of procedures meant uh, was that land ended up dispersed to random individuals. It looked much more haphazard uh, than development in the New England colonies. So this is what my home county of Admiral looks like. A man actually drew this just recently, which is kind of astonishing. He went back and tried to figure out the meets and bounds and drew this uh, in his free time. So he's even crazier than I am. Um, uh, this was settled relatively late, but you can still sort of see the resulting layout, um, which is very haphazard and sort of random. Um, and this led very early to more problems. We know there were significant numbers of squatters throughout Virginia, and certainly a lot of land litigation. Uh, and intriguingly, Virginians were looking north for help. Uh, as their version of meets and bounds that they were maintaining in the capital was kind of falling apart. Uh, so Virginia adopted its own land processioning law in about 1662, after the New England colonies had adopted it and ostensibly inspired by them. The act specified that within a, within a year of its enactment, uh, all inhabitants of land should go in procession and see the marked trees of every man's land and the same course to be taken once every four years, by which means the inconvenience of clandestine survey will be taken away and the bounds will be generally known and marked so fresh that no alteration can be made afterwards. Colony said it was important to start processioning now, better late than never, because men live that are yet acquainted with the first surveys, and while land is yet at a low value, then it will be when time hath rooted out all knowledge to the bounds and added greater value. Despite these proclamations by the county for why they're doing it, uh, this didn't work too well. So owners resisted processioning 
and later legislative acts referred to the refusals of property owners to participate. So a 1710 law noted that whereas diverse persons, uh, owners of land in this colony, refuse to suffer their said land to be processioned, to the great inconvenience and damage of the owners, they would now be forced to pay for a jury and surveyors who would go uh, and do it even without their permission. And so this threat of having to pay for a jury and surveyors seems to have increased compliance a little bit, but still owners were hesitant to participate. You might ask why. So in many instances, it seems that they lacked trust forged through social connections. So certainly some owners were unscrupulous. They knew their boundaries were off and they didn't want them to be processed. Uh, but others were worried about the surveyors and their neighbors and how honest they were going to behave during the process. They worried that the burden of inaccurate surveyors would fall on them and enrich their neighbors. As this account might suggest, uh, I hypothesize that some of Virginia's land troubles were due to the less strong social ties among its settlers and the heavy centralization of its land distribution and recording scheme, both of which could have depressed property values and created later problems. And while it would be foolish to attribute a ton of causation to the land system, uh, these depressions may have contributed to consolidation of the land uh, in the hands of a relative powerful few. Um, you might notice something else on this Admiral slide, although again, I think it's kind of hard to see, uh, but there are no towns in this picture. So another odd piece of Virginia history was its efforts to retrofit townships into already settled places, just as it tried to retrofit perambulation onto lands already laid out. So towns, of course, are important spaces for market participation. Uh, but Virginia, a lot of Virginia, was planned without them. Uh, in 1688, one Englishman noted, plantations run over vast tracts of ground whereby the country is thinly inhabited, their living is solitary and unsociable, and trading confused and dispersed besides other inconveniences. Partially as a result of these conditions, uh, in 1680, Virginia mandated that each of its counties buy 50 acres of land from the public domain or from individuals for towns and put a market house, church, and courthouse uh, for public documents in each one of them. This town top-down approach proved very different from New England. Uh, so Charlottesville is one of the types of towns that was just planted. And so they did this in uh, grids. They were centrally imposed on grids. Uh, notably, in many instances, these lands were actually unsaleable. So Charlottesville was unable to sell most of these lands. Only seven of the lots actually sold. Uh, a little different than how it is now. Uh, but perhaps people were just used uh, to their, having their preferences satisfied uh, by meets and bounds, being able to pick exactly what they wanted. Uh, I find it kind of fascinating that in New England, uh, most towns are not planned. Um, New Haven is actually planned, so I'll put that map up and I'll go back to Charlottesville. But uh, New Haven had kind of a central grid and then irregularity um, outside of it. But much more often, we associate New England towns with things like this, which is a map of Boston, which still is like this, basically, uh, kind of incomprehensible to get around. Um, and, and so it seems, though, that this might have been desirable and functional for these early settlers who sort of were devising the paths to where they needed to go. Uh, I find it fascinating that you can kind of see different levels of flexibility even as to streets in different regions of American settlement. So I'm going to bring myself to a conclusion, uh, which is how this history all interacts with what I began with, which was Hernando de Soto, pretty far from where I, I've ended up. Um, we're both interested uh, in the relationship of informal practices to formal legal institutions, which is a transition that DeSoto believes is possible everywhere. Uh, but I'm not so sure that we would have gotten a functional recording system uh, that would have developed at least as, efficient, as efficiently without kind of a close-knit uh, small social group experimenting with land uh, 
description and recording rules. Uh, the design and development of American recording institutions depended heavily on securing buy-in from those initial settlers by facilitating low-cost recording and decentralizing much of the task of boundary maintenance uh, to the community and away from a weak and kind of small colonial state. I think early recordings were at their most functional when they were used by small groups like these. Uh, and so it's unsurprising that the antecedents of our modern recording institutions come out of New England, local administration, flexible, and they're not more centralized and costly as they were here. In other words, I think the uh, establishment and eventual export of critical institutions and property uh, oddly owes to a bunch of 17th century religious zealots uh, in New England. And when I say religious zealots, let me just tell you that this New Haven plan uh, was meant to fit 144,000 people, uh, which is how many you need for an ascension tip. Um, and so that's the level of zealotry uh, that we're talking about. But still, I think it was important uh, for our institutional development. I'm thankful that you guys all came today. I'm looking forward to your questions.